Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. If you change your questions, you can change your life. And this is really a conversation about the art of storytelling as a whole. And when this, my next guest does in fact share a story, everyone is tuned in listening because he is one of the best storytellers I've ever had the privilege of having and speaking to on the show. His name is Cal Fussman. Now, for those of you that don't know who he is, he's a keynote speaker, New York Times bestselling author, writer at large for Esquire magazine and corporate culture uh, consultant. He has interviewed and hold, held or held conversations, sorry, with some of the world's most notable names from uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, you've got Larry King, uh, Simone Biles, you've got some presidents like Donald Trump, Jimmy Carter, uh, Ted Kennedy, you got Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, Jack Welch, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, uh, Bruce Springsteen, Dr. Dre, Quincy Jones, and even Muhammad Ali. The story of him uh, sitting down and speaking with Muhammad Ali is quite fascinating. Nonetheless, I believe we do dive into it during this conversation. But Carl's keynotes and interactive works, workshops are derived from decades of interviewing hundreds of the world's most extraordinary people. They inspire organizations to take a new look at the fundamental aspects of their business by changing their questions and improving communication skills through storytelling. Over the years, Cal has worked with the likes of many notable brands such as Facebook, General Motors, Pixar, Twitter, Apple Music, Samsung, Twitter, uh, Lululemon, and many, many more. Uh, Cal has also appeared on Tim Ferriss's podcast, which I highly encourage you to go and check that one out. They do a, uh, two conversations, I believe. One goes for, I think it's over an hour and 50 minutes, and the other one, believe it or not, goes for over three hours of pure bliss. Uh, 
Uh, I loved both of those conversations. Uh, but this was really a conversation I was so much looking forward to in the fact that Cal is a tremendous, tremendous storyteller. It, it happened, this one in particular happened uh, a couple of months ago, actually, during the middle of the year, which I was really, really uh, privileged and, and blessed to be able to connect with Cal. And we had a lot of fun during this conversation. So I know you guys are going to love hearing from Cal and you'll be connected with everything that he pretty much says during this conversation. Uh, so if you did get something from it, please do share it around with your friends and family. You guys know the the drill. I uh, really do appreciate each and every one of you that do come back and do continue to share the stories uh, on the story box. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It's time to journey with me into the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and definitely the amazing story from none other than Cal Fussman. Glad to be down under. You're down under. Finally, we got you here <laughs> in, in a matter of sense. <laughs> um, there is an actual pretty cool story behind us connecting. Um, I know we've been trying to do this for the last couple of days, so I'm really grateful for your flexibility. Um, but thank you. Thankful that you are actually here today. Um, Cal, I have one question that I normally ask all my guests to start off with. And you've listened to my podcast. You listened to my, my Dr. Michael Gervais podcast, who's a good friend and good leader uh, in, in society today. And that is, what does success look like to you? A lot of it depends on the time frame you're in. For instance, we're now in the time of COVID. Mm. And so the best way I could illustrate the point is through telling the story. And I think you'll find that just about any question you ask me, the answer will be a story. Mm. So this story comes from a surfer named Laird Hamilton. I know him. Yes. Heard of him? Yes. You know who he is? I know his wife. We I had her on the podcast, Gabby. Oh, that's beautiful. So Laird is out there in the middle of the ocean, like doing 60 foot waves. They got to tow him out there to get to waves at that height. And I said to him, like, what happens when you go down under all that water and that energy? because we're not talking about ordinary waves here. And he said, Cal, the first thing that I do is I close my eyes. I don't want to waste any energy even seeing because I am getting ragdolled, like I'm in a washing machine and the ocean is just bending me however it wants to bend me. Mm going round and round and I just keep my arms out and I let it send me wherever it wants. I'm just not going to waste any energy because I know that it's going to pin me for a while, but it is then going to let me up. And I don't think he actually said it this way, but the way I took it was it's sort of like we need to breathe, but the, also the ocean's breathing. It's the tides 
going in, the tide's coming out. And so there's going to be a moment where the water is going to let up on him. Mm. And he said, that's the moment that I open my eyes and I go straight to the surface mm. using all the energy that I have been holding back, waiting for that moment. Mm. And to me, that is success in the time of the coronavirus. Uh, you know, a lot of people, if you had aims or goals that you wanted to achieve, that you planned to achieve in 2020, and they didn't come true, you could say it's a miserable failure. But if you look at it the way Laird explained it, Basically, the success was being able to close your eyes and just let your arms go and move with the time just in waiting for that moment where it's time to rise. Mm. And if you can do that, then you are successful. Mm. That's beautiful. Now, very different, very different from success at a different time. But I guess that's my point that success is relative to the time you're living in. Mm. Have you ever struggled with actually going with the analogy that you gave, going with the tide, so to speak? Um, going with the flow of things? I've never struggled with that. It's, you know what, it's interesting you say that. The only time I've struggled with it is when I didn't go with it. Mm. I'll give you a great example. Uh, and I learned this right before I talked to Laird Hamilton. He was the one who tipped me off to treating COVID as if a 60-foot wave had taken you down under. Mm. Uh, because what happened back in 2008, you're a pretty young guy. I don't know how old you were back then, but maybe you remember. It's pretty rough here where I was. And I had actually overextended myself. So I was basically like living on two coasts, mm. uh, homes on both coasts at a, at a time where basically the economy just went like you're in an airplane and it just goes from 35,000 feet to 10,000 feet. And you don't even know if it's going to crash, uh, but it's impossible to make money. And I sensed this was coming. And somebody had just taught me like how to read the finance on the, the stock market. And so I could look at the companies and the prices. And I saw that Citibank, the stock for Citibank was down to about $1 a share. Wow. It gone from like 50 to one. And I thought to myself, you know, this is it. Mm. This is it. All I got to do is just put everything I own into city and it's going to go back up to 50 or 60 or wherever it was before after this is all over. Mm. So I'm a kind of guy that goes all in on everything I do. I'm not... A le like a level guy. And so I called up a bunch of friends of mine who are very good with the stock market. 
And they were all pulling their money out of the stock market. And so I'm telling them, I'm, I'm going all in on this. I'm throwing everything on Citibank because I knew that like the country of Saudi Arabia had a big stake in it. And Saudi Arabia ain't going out of business. People still needed oil. So I said, everything, throwing it on. <laughs> and everybody that I talked to just said, Cal, don't, please, I beg you, do not do this. You're like, it, Lehman Brothers has been around for 150 years. It's now out of business. We don't know. The whole system may go out. You want to just take whatever you have and put it in treasury bonds. And so they spooked me. They spooked me. And I didn't follow my gut. And well, just look at what city. It's probably at 50 or 60 now. And if I had done that, well, I'd have been a very different situation. Mm. So there is something to be said. And I've always, I've heard that in your gut, you have, I don't know what you call it, call them neurons or whatever connects to your brain. Your brain is transmitting feelings. I don't know what it's transmitting, but it's transmitting something, which is the reason why when you get nervous and feel your stomach flip, it's your brain is talking to you. You just, it's just coming from your gut. Mm. And so I did not go with the gut and paid a price. Mm. And after that, I met Laird. He told me that story. So when COVID hit this year, I just knew, just close your eyes, Cal. Put your arms out. It's going to be over after time. And as soon as you feel the water relent, straight, straight to the surface. So I'm basically ready to do just that. I love that because I can relate so much to what you said. And a similar experience happened to me last year, Cal. I was actually in real estate and things didn't really work out too well for me in real estate and I had to leave. And when I left, I was kind of lost a little bit. Like I didn't really know what I wanted to do in life. And I went for so many different job interviews. I was actually headhunted for the top recruitment company here in Sydney, Australia, and among many other jobs. So I was offered, I think about five different job positions and something just for me, it didn't feel right at all. And this is the moment that I needed to learn to actually listen to my gut because from then I didn't listen to it at all. I just followed what people told me to do. And each time I did that, I wasn't happy at all and ended up suffering severe consequences. But even in that, you know, I learned some amazing things, which uh, I believe you learned with not investing with, with Citibank. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty incredible um, thing. But when I, I had the opportunity, I was sitting in the office of the CEO for this recruitment company. And he asked me this one question. He's like, why do you want to work here? And that got my brain thinking. And I thought to myself, well, why do I want to work there? And it hit me all at once. It was like this light bulb moment, Cal. And I was like, I don't want to work here. I don't. I, I, all I want to do is, is help people. And 
that's that's how I responded. And when I went home on the train and I thought of more about it, and I'm like, there's got to be something more than just helping people get a job. Sure, I can do that. Sure, the money's great, but is that what I really want? And then I started thinking further into, okay, how can I really fulfill my purpose and really start to listen to my gut? And I had so many opportunities right after that that were very enticing. But it's interesting because I didn't know that COVID was going to come. I didn't know if I had taken any of those jobs, I would have been out of work or I would have been broke. Who knows? But I listened to my gut for the first time in my life and it worked. I ended up being in a, a better financial position. I ended up building this incredible podcast and I wouldn't be here today speaking to you, Cal, if I didn't listen to my gut. So I just wanted to relay that message of, yes, it's okay to just let what will be will be. It's going to be okay if you just go with the flow of things oftentimes. So thought I mentioned Well, that. if you just look at yourself in that story, it's very intriguing because a question permitted you to see yourself mm. in a way that the person who asked it didn't certainly didn't anticipate. I guarantee you he asked that or she asked you that question. The question, the question that was asked was asked to every person who sat in the seat you were sitting in. Mm. And they all, if they really wanted the job, immediately responded to that with something good that they found out about the company. Mm. They were prepared for the question and they were able to kick back an answer to help them get hired. But you took the question to a deep level. And it worked for you. I didn't expect And, and I got to say, you know, helping somebody find a job is a pretty cool thing. Mm. But it wasn't where you're at. No. No. And look at you now at the height of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do try, you know, I'm, I'm still building, still growing and still learning along the way, which is the incredible thing about life, I reckon. Um, How do you get all these great guests? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe you can help. Like, how did I reach out to you? I was via email. Um, I basically have my vision, my mission on the email. And I guess the idea worked. Like, I, I love stories. I love unboxing and diving into and asking the different questions that no one really asks. Like, I listen to podcasts and I listen to what, guests are always asked and I'm always thinking in, in the forefront of my brain and even in the back of my brain sometimes, well, what haven't they been asked before? What are some of the things that I could dive into that would be of value, not to just myself, but to them and to the audience listening. So I guess for me, I like saying that I'm different and I love diving into unique and interesting stories and trying to get to the heart of the person because that's where you can connect and that's where you can really help somebody to grow and to learn and to improve their life. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I, people just believe in, in uh, the mission, I guess. 
Um, would you would you say that your childhood curiosity is just as strong now as it was when you were four years old? When I was four, I was always curious. I never got on well with kids my own age. Let's just say that. But I would say that it was it's much stronger now, having gone through a great deal of experience throughout life. And I want to ask deeper questions, more thought-provoking questions. Whereas when I was four or six, even, I would ask still deep questions, but they I wouldn't really understand the meaning behind them as much. But now that I'm older, that curiosity is followed through with meaning and purpose and followed through with even more questions sometimes. Um, have you found the same thing for yourself? Uh, I, I think you're very unique uh, because most people, and studies have proved this, ask the most amount of questions when they're four. In fact, one study showed that when you're four years old, you can ask your parents up to 400 questions a day. Whoa. Like, why? Why? Why is the sky blue? Why? Why, mom? Why, dad? And it's the interesting thing that happens. I don't know. When do you go to, do they, do they call it kindergarten in Australia? Yes, kindergarten. I was six years old. So I actually went to kindy late. <laughs> and I, was, I wasn't exactly the smartest kid either. I, why did you go to kindergarten late? I struggled with, um, what, what could you say, uh, grammar and English. And I guess like I would ask people questions, but then me focusing in as much wasn't as great. So they thought that I wasn't mature enough to enter into kindergarten. So my mom had to uh, homeschool me for a little bit and then get me to that maturity level so I could actually go into kindergarten. And yeah, that's, that's what happened to me. <laughs> yeah. No, you're a very unique person because what happens with most people is they have that curiosity at age four, but then at five, they go into kindergarten. And so they're used to asking why, why? And all of a sudden teacher says, if you wanna ask a question, you can't just blurt it out. You can't just scream it out. You've got to raise your hand. And something very crucial happens in that moment. And everybody can identify with this. Mm -hmm. The questions shift from the little one to the big one, the older one, asking the questions on down. Mm -hmm. And sure, Toward the end of the lesson, the teacher's always going to ask, does anybody have any questions? Raise your hand. But the, but the reality is, is that the children have been told to limit your questions to the time when the older person says it's okay to ask. Mm. And that sets in motion a whole cycle so that by fourth and fifth grade is certainly when you get to junior high school, 12, 13, it becomes uncomfortable for a lot of people to raise their hand and ask a question. Uh, during puberty, if you ask a foolish question, 
the rest of the class may turn on you and make fun of you. And, and that was like back in the day. Do it now, it could be on social media and a million people will know what a foolish question you ask. And so the hands come down and the questions get limited. Mm. And this just keeps going on and on to the point where 20, you graduate from college, you're 22, you're 23, you go into your first job, you don't understand something. It's only natural to ask, how does this work? Mm. But part of you starts to think, if I ask that question, people may think that I'm dumb, that I don't know what I'm doing. So you know what? I'm just going to hold it back. Mm. I'm not going to ask the question. And I'll try and figure it out by the circumstances that are going around. And so what you see is the curiosity is slowly being chipped away because we are not wanting to ask questions for a lot of reasons. And then, and this isn't my generation, but the youngest generation, they really got messed over because they came up in a time of Google. They don't even have to ask questions. They wanna know the population of Sydney, Australia. They don't have to say, what's the population of Sydney? They just type on a screen, population Sydney, and the answer comes up. Mm. And so for them, Questions are very different than they were for me. And I find a lot of people, young people, have problems articulating a clear question because they don't have much experience at it. Mm. Curiosity is now replaced with fear. And that fear controls what they can and can't say. And I, I, I felt the same way, like even before I started this. So even asking someone to come on my show, that was a very daunting thing. And I'm curious for you, Cal, and being the, the big question guy and knowing what kind of questions to ask, how do we combat this? How do we help somebody that is struggling with the fear of asking questions? How do we actually help them? to ask the right questions? A couple things immediately come to mind. Number one, relax. <laughs> you never ever lose your childhood curiosity. It is always there. Mm. It's just that it's gotten buried over time. Like every time that the kindergarten teacher says, raise your hand, it's like, they're taking a shovel of dirt and throwing it on your childhood curiosity. And then the kid in middle school asks a foolish question, everybody laughs, he'll never ask a question again, another shovel. It's, it's just repeated shovels of dirt, but it's under there. And if you're willing to just stop for a moment and ask yourself, what do I want to really know about? Mm -hmm. Who would I ask? 
how would I ask it? Mm. And then you can go on a path to doing that. It's, it really is not that hard. Mm. And I would also say that a lot of times, I don't know how this translates to Australia, uh, because I often notice that commentators in the UK and maybe Australia, they may speak differently than the commentators here. Mm. And one of the things that's happened on TV here is that questions have literally been eliminated and replaced by, talk to me about yeah. how you interview. Talk to me about how you started your podcast. Mm. That is a terrible way to ask a question. Number one, it's not a question. Number two, it's allowing you to say anything you want. Very different from why did you want to start this podcast? Mm. Was there a moment that occurred to you, I need to start a podcast? You're going to react to that question much differently than talk to us about a podcast. Yeah. And a lot of people don't understand that communication is not just the actual words. In fact, it's estimated that it's only 10% the words, 30% your tone of voice, mm. 60% your body language, your facial expression, all right? So if I say, talk to me, about your headphones, you can respond in one way or another. It's so open and vague, it, it's non-inflammatory. Say whatever you want, as opposed to, why did you choose those particular headphones? Is there something special about those headphones? Do you really wish you had a different kind Mm. Is there an upscale model that you were really thinking about? Now we're going to find out about those headphones. So if you combine the, the actual use of the words why or how, which are very open-ended questions, then you are going to get a different response. When you say why, or how, you're going to sound different than when you say, talk to me about. Mm. That's given an order. That's not asking a question. No. And so I think questioning is kind of under assault right now. I don't know if it's the same in Australia, only can speak in America. Uh, but judging from the way you're working here, it seems like curiosity is alive and well down under. 
<laughs> it is with me. <laughs> is this is this sort of interview style, like asking these kinds of questions, is that possible for everybody? Is it a learned behavior, you think? Well, yes. I think anybody can learn to do it. I think that, uh, look, I actually help people start podcasts. I give people interviewing advice. So I know that I can tell them to use the words why or how instead of, don't you think? Because if you start a question with, don't you think, you're basically assuming that you know what the person thinks. Mm. And there are going to be a lot of people who react negatively to that. And, and so it's a very simple concept. Why is one word? Mm. It presents a huge opening. And it allows the person asked to actually go deep into themselves and try to understand why they do certain things. I'll give you an example. I'm going to ask you a question. Mm. Why is your best friend your best friend? Because they respect, honor, love, and really care for me unlike anybody else. That's why. They're, they're different. And whenever I need something, advice, whatever it is, shoulder the cry on, you can go to them, call them up whenever I want. That's why. Did it make you feel good for that second that you weren't, you were searching for the answer? Did it make you feel good to be thinking of whoever you were thinking about? It did. It really did. Because then I started picturing moments when they were actually there for me. And those were mini stories that I envisioned in my brain that sort of made me feel happy inside. And it sort of made me realize, yes, they are my best friend because of this and this. And then now if you were to ask me, we'll share one particular story, then I could actually do that. So, you know, like that's exactly what I was going to do. <laughs> <laughs> give me, give me a good story. Um, and this is not for me. This is for you because this story is going to make you feel good because you're going to be telling a story about somebody who makes you feel good, who you care about, maybe they're going to be watching. Maybe they don't even know what you're going to say. Mm. What's a moment in your life where your best friend did something that made you feel great? Okay, so I've had a pretty pretty crazy life, um, being in and out of hospital like you would not believe. I didn't know you were going to flip the interview on me, Cal. This is cool. <laughs> I'll flip it back to you in a moment. Don't worry. Um, but because of the fact that I've been in hospital in and out pretty much all my life with different health struggles, you name it, one of the most recent stories that 
And I can honestly say my mum is my best friend. I can I can say that without a without a shadow of a doubt because even though we we fight sometimes and that's perfectly normal, but she's been there every step of the way. Like every time I've been in hospital, she's been there beside me and hasn't left my side once. She's constantly prayed for me, constantly supported everything. And even though we we do butt heads with certain things, it's it's okay. Like you you do still respect each other. So the more recent time that I can share with you all is I ended up, it was November of 2018, I ended up getting meningitis meningococcal. And the day that I was actually sick, um, I was in my bed, the blinds were closed, everything. Mum walks in and she's like, I'm taking you to the doctor. And I was like, no, 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 I don't need to go. But she's like, no, no, we're going. She took me down to the local doctor. She, I was, um, I couldn't see. So I was, I guess you could say I was blind, but vision impaired. Um, so she had to guide me into the doctor's office for me to actually see a doctor. I could only hear things. I couldn't see. And the nurses were really kind. Anyway, fast forwarding, I ended up in hospital. And during that oh, night. You can't even see now. Your mom is literally leading you into the doctor and do the doctors figure out what's going on or do they say, okay, you better go to the hospital. We got to examine this more closely. Pretty much what happened was they, I had all the signs and symptoms of meningitis. Now there's type A and there's type B. So type A is uh, bacterial, which is can, can, you can contract uh, the deadly form of meningi uh, meningococcal, which you develop rashes and, can lose limbs and it goes into your bloodstream and therefore you can die. Uh, type B is viral. You can still die from that. There's like a 50, 50% chance of you uh, surviving through it. Um, but that one, that one's curable. It just takes a, a bit of time, but the only way for you to really know, um, and I didn't know this at the time is for them to do a lumbar puncture, which is they stick a massive needle about that long. If you're watching on, on uh, video, in your into spine, your spine. Oh. and drain meningitis. Yeah, spinal, okay. yes, right. a, a very painful and unpleasant experience. But the doctor said to me, "The only way you're going to know is if you go to hospital and get this done." And I've gone, "Nah, I don't want to go." Because, <laughs> <laughs> Cal, I was sick and tired of all the pain. Like I, I was, I was fed up at that point. Like, why is this happening to me? All those kinds of questions. Um, all this pain, and they say we're going to figure this out by giving you more pain. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so, would you do it? Probably. Who knows? You know. But um, well, it it does sound like it's when somebody's going to stick a needle this big into your spine. It really is saying, okay that's going to take you to the, to the bottom of the cave. Whatever your cavern of pain is, we're going to hit the bottom there, and now we're going to come back up to the surface. So I, I can get it. All right, go ahead. We're going to test you extremely hard. And right. it was interesting because when I, when I get to the, the, the hospital, I'm ushered in and there's no beds available. There's only a chair. So I'm sitting in the chair. I couldn't see the doctor. And the doctor said to me, he's like, so I, we need to do this uh, lumbar puncture in order to determine 
if you have it, which one you have. And I'm like, so how many of these have you actually done? I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> and guess how many he said that he's actually done? He said, to be honest, this is going to be my first. Close. Second. So I was like, <laughs> great. Was the first one successful or was it not? And then he's like, oh, it, it was successful. I'm like, okay, great. So 50, 50% chance that I can, <laughs> I can, I can either survive this or die from it. Because what, what can happen, Cal, is they stick the needle, they're going blind. So he can't see right. a thing. And if they hit the wrong nerve in your spine, you can either be paralyzed or it can go to your, your brain. You can end up having a stroke. Uh, oh, all, all kinds of things can happen if you, you go wrong. The only way they can hit the right uh, spinal tap or, yeah, is if you uh, feel the sharp pain in the left side of your leg and it's really, really sharp. Now, if, if it feels like you've got that sharp pain in the left side, that immediately tips them off. Okay, we know what it is. We can pull it out. Or does that mean, all right, we still got another 10 minutes of pain to administer? We've still got another 15, 20 minutes of pain to administer oh. because they've got to drain the spinal fluid. And oh. fun fact, it kind of looks like mercury. So it's silver. It's like the coolest thing ever. Like I actually had my mom film it. And because I'm a filmmaker, so I'm like, I've got to film this. This is a an experience. Unfortunately, I lost the video, but I've got a photo. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, that's that's another story entirely. But um, I have the photo to this day, and it's got like the needle and the spinal being drip, dripping out, and that takes a while for it to actually drip out because they need to get at least that that much in a small vial. Um, so I'm thankful that it was a success. The results came back as being viral uh, meningitis. Which is um, a good sign, right? It's a good sign, but I still wasn't out of the woods yet. But during that period of pain, my mom was there. She held my hand and we prayed before we did the, the operation because I was scared. Like you don't know you just don't know. You're going in blind. It's literally based around faith in the hand of the doctor, God, whatever you want to believe in. It's like, that's, that's it. Are you going to survive this or not? So, but mum was like, you're strong. You're going to make, you're going to get through it. Um, and I was sort of like joking at the same time when the needle went in. <laughs> uh, just trying to keep it, trying to keep it lighthearted, humorous, just in case. But um, I did, I did end up surviving, thank God, from that experience. And that's one of the many moments that I can share with you, Cal, of literally mum being there and helping. And it sounds like she was also photographing. Yeah, she was my personal photographer during the whole thing. <laughs> but. And how, how did the doctor come through this? Because now he's two for two. Was he pretty cocky afterward? <laughs> well, it's interesting because when it was a success, you could see like the massive sigh of relief on his face. He's like, yeah. oh. <laughs> because, you know, he's, he's got somebody's life in his hands. 
And that's a pretty daunting thing. I wouldn't want to be where he is. So, you know, I, I tried to make it as lighthearted as I possibly could. I mean, it took me four to four to six hours to actually decide to do this operation. And it was 12 o'clock at night. So, or in the morning. So oh, you did this operation at 12 midnight. Yep. <laughs> it took me forever to actually decide, Cal, if I wanted to have this done or not. And you know, if you had done this at nine in the morning, you might have gotten a doctor who'd done it a few hundred times. Yep. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if they have the same system in Australia, but in America, one of the rules you learn, if you ever come to America, what you don't want to do is go to an emergency room in the beginning of July. Why? Because all of the doctors that have graduated and are now like their first day doctors. Oh boy. It's the beginning of July. <laughs> and so everybody walks in thinking, oh, it's the doctor, but it's really the first day they're doctors. Oh, and so I don't know, maybe they do it different in, Aust in Australia, but just a tip to you, if you're ever in the United States and you got to get sick, like do it in April. If you can, try and hold <laughs> off. <laughs> try and hold off your sickness. That's good advice. <laughs> Oh, man. You know, I don't know if you know this uh, about me, but one of the things that came out of that initial story that I told you about just closing my eyes and getting a feel for the world in order to come up to the surface, uh, but I just started to look around and this is a good conversation because we're going to get to some differences between United States and the land down under. We are, for the most part, most people are insured through their job. And so that means if you have a good job with a good company, you know, those good companies have good healthcare plans to entice people to go work there. And I think it's like 160 million uh, people who are working are insured that way. Hmm. Now, what started to happen is with the virus, the economy started to, to slow and these companies started to lay people off furlough people, fire people, and guess what? They're no longer bringing in income and they're being severed from their health insurance at a time of the worst pandemic in the country's history. And I just thought to myself, you know what? This is one of those things that probably everybody would be in agreement with. This is just not right. Mm. It's in nobody's interest to have a system where in the midst of a pandemic, large sections of the population can't go to the hospital to be taken care of out of fear that they don't 
have the money to pay for it. Mm. And I realized that there are, this system is broken. Yep. And so I decided, I said, you know what? I've got 30 years left to live under the best of circumstances, maybe a little more. I'm going to try to reshape healthcare in America. That's why I'm so fascinated by, you know, the story of the needle and the spine and your mom and those moments, because I realize it's the biggest impact that I can make with my life going forward. And all going back to the other start of the conversation, all I really need to have is my questions in order to do it. I do not know much about healthcare. I once worked in an emergency room decades ago, but the point is I have no agenda other than to make healthcare better for everybody. So I can be trusted. And look, I've gone in interview Muhammad Ali and Mikhail Gorbachev and Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos. So hopefully I have some level of trust mm. when I walk in to ask a question. And I am going to make changes. The interesting thing about it, I figured that there were going to be people who just say he's gone crazy. He doesn't know anything about healthcare. Not one person has responded, and I've had on my podcast many people to talk about the topic, and they've all jumped in with me, offered whatever help they can, cheered me on, uh, because they all see there's a problem, but they're also rooting for the questions. That's the questions are all I have. Mm. And it may be that the questions are the best way to solve these problems. Because a lot of people, when they become bosses, they have a way of doing things. And somebody in their company goes to them and says, can we do this or try it this way? No, it won't work. Mm. Do it my way. But when somebody from the outside comes in, and ask a question that gets you to stop and think, it leaves a person open to possibilities. So that's where I'm taking the questions next. Mm. Do you think it's actually possible with leadership to actually get the right kind of healthcare that's suitable for everybody and it benefits everybody? Well, I don't necessarily think that everybody is going to have the same health care. Mm. Okay. I think it, it's going to be more like an airplane. Everybody gets on. Everybody can get a ticket. But some people are going to be in first class. Mm. Some people can be in business class. Some people are going to ride economy, but bottom line is if you get in an economy seat, you should be treated great. Mm. You should get great service. 
Should the be. plane should take off and land with you being safe and happy. Hmm. And that's sort of the way I envision it because if you start to say everybody's going to get the same, there are going to be those who have something that's good or exceptional now that immediately are going to rebel against you because you're taking away from them. Mm. I'm saying let's give more to everybody, no matter where they are. Mm. And the overall more is when you have a society where everybody's healthy or as many people can be healthy as possible, everybody's healthier. And trust me, there are a huge amount of problems and maybe you don't have them in Australia because does the government take care of your health in Australia? You've got to pay for it, but I think the Australian healthcare system is pretty good compared to America. Like I've heard some pretty daunting things about the American healthcare system that it saddens me because I want to ask you, do you believe that healthcare should be a human right, that we should be free to have it? Because if you look at a country like Switzerland, for example, you don't have to pay for healthcare. It comes free for right. you. So do you, do you believe that should be passed across for every single country? Well, I think that it should be a right. Mm. And I think that, I think when you make it a right, the first thing you do is you cut down on stress, mm. cut down on worry, you cut down on mental illness, and you're making a healthier society just simply allowing people to know that if something happens to me, I don't have to worry. I can go to a doctor, be taken care of, and hopefully everything's going to be okay. Mm. Uh, do I believe that it's going to be the same doctors for everybody? No. I think that there are what we call now concierge doctors who basically work for themselves. And if somebody has a lot of money, they can basically hire this doctor to watch over them. Mm -hmm. And if, at three in the morning on a Tuesday night, if something goes wrong, they can call their doctor and get an immediate response because they are paying directly for it. Mm. Now, all this may change once telemedicine comes in. There's going to be so many breakthroughs, so many changes. But sticking with that main point, I believe that everybody should be able to wake up in the morning and not have to worry that their healthcare needs aren't going to be taken care of by really qualified, good people who are gonna deliver a great result. Mm. And I think it's done. And look, we have miracles in hospitals in America every day. And I've seen them with my own eyes. 
It's, it's simply balanced by the fact that every day in America, a physician on average commits suicide. And so we are not balanced and we need a system that is going to give everybody the feeling that they don't have to worry while also giving those who can afford a first class seat the ability to pay for that level of care, whatever it is. Mm. So that's basically the way I'm thinking. I'd have to agree with you because it seems like even here in Australia, we've got private healthcare, which you pay a premium amount for, and then we've got public healthcare. So you've got public hospitals and private hospitals. I've been in both. And honestly, depending on which hospital you're going to, depends on like you, you get different nurses that treat you very differently. I've had great nurses in public hospitals compared to private hospitals, like, and the way they actually look after you is spread. Like, but I, I, I believe that it should be almost the same. I don't think that you should have people paying an absolute premium for private healthcare and I think that people should actually be guaranteed or granted access to the same amount, like you were saying, first class ticket uh, on the plane. Like what is the harm of doing that? Um, because it should be a human right. It really should be. And that's coming from personal experience, having been in countless hospitals and seeing a lot of people actually in immense amount of pain and how hard all the staff members actually work. Like it, I think the government should step in a bit more because healthcare is, is a very important thing for society. If you want to keep the people moving, <laughs> that is. Completely. And, and not only that, we don't do enough preventative healthcare. Mm. We have created a culture where a lot of people are passive. I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but basically we just kind of move along. And if something happens, we go to the doctor and hope that we can get a pill to make it go away. Yep. Whatever the pain is. And the reality is like in America, doctors are not taught about nutrition in medical school. I don't know if it's the same in Australia. Uh, it would be good to find out. But it's pretty obvious because even back in the days of Hippocrates, mm. it was well known that food can be medicine. Mm. So there's so many things to look into. There are so many questions to ask. And I am jumping into it and going to see where it takes me. Mm, I love that. If you were to ask a question to somebody alive or dead that you haven't already, who would it be? Why? And what big question would you ask them? All right. There's this guy 
Oh, and I, he's got, let me see if I can find it for you. You're going to have to just wait a second. And uh, it may take me, I, I want to get his name right. Oh, man. I'm sorry to do this to you. Okay. Oh, here it is. Let's see. Yes. <laughs> and you're going to laugh now because you're going to know why I took the time to get this guy's name. His name is Ignatz Semmelweis. Ignatz Semmelweis. That's who I want to talk to about healthcare. And you know why? Why? This is the guy. Then the book that I, I've got on order, I'm waiting for it to come. It's called The Doctor's Plague, Germs, Childbed Fever, and the Strange Story of Ignatz Semmelweis. This is the doctor who I think figured out that washing your hands and being very clean uh, in that hospital setting could lead to improved outcomes. Mm. Now, here's the thing. For whatever reason, I'm waiting to get the book, so I can't... <laughs> I can't tell you what's going to happen. I don't know, but I was led to believe that he came up with this theory and it pissed people off. They didn't want to believe it. And it turned out into a bad ending for Ignatz. Mm. And so I want to know from Ignatz what the hell happened and why did it happen? And I would like to come to some kind of conclusion if whatever happened back then is linked to the fact that we have so many people in this country who are not wearing masks in the time of the coronavirus. Mm. So there's my question. Now everybody knows about Ignatz. He's the guy I'd like to talk to, and then I'd like to know his story, because I don't think it turned out particularly well, even though he had a great idea. Mm. Where did you hear of Ignace? Uh, I was moving through, just researching. I'm Look, I'm coming in to healthcare without knowing anything. Mm. So like any interview I would do, I got to do research. I got to understand what I'm talking about. Okay. And so one of the first things I thought was, all right, let me go back in history and understand who were the players in healthcare over the centuries? What were their ideas? How did the ideas develop? So I can see the patterns and understand how it all led up to where we are today. And that is basically how I stumbled on Ignatz. And I gotta say, there's probably not too many people in the world mentioning Ignatz's name today, mm. uh, outside of myself, and only because of your good question. Mm. How about that? <laughs> never would have known. <laughs> So my, I've really enjoyed this conversation, um, Cal. Uh, I'm curious about 
And one of the things I haven't really heard much about is you swimming with 18 foot tiger sharks. Why in the world would you do something like that? And were you scared? Well, what happened was I found out that at the time, and look, this could be a big issue in Australia because I know you got the great whites there. You got people out surfing and, uh, and this, this happened back in like the early 90s. Oh, wow. And I came across this statistic that I think, and it, look, it's been, it's almost 30 years now. So uh, I hope I can remember this statistic accurately, but it was something like sharks, like 90 million sharks a year were getting killed. Something like that. And six sharks were eating humans. <laughs> and, yet, and yet the imagery we have are horrific images. It's like Jaws. Dun, 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 dun. And I became very curious, like what, what really is going on here? And like I found out that you know, sharks are kind of like the sanitation department of the sea. Mm. They cull out uh, weaker species and they're like at the top of the food chain and, and they basically order everything on down. And so when you're wiping them out, when you are catching them and cutting their fins and then throwing them back in the water so that the fins can be sent off to the Orient to make shark fin soup, then what are we doing? And so I went on a quest to find out about sharks. Now, it makes you wonder, like, what does a shark feel like? And some scientists down in the Bahamas said, you know what, why don't you come down and we'll, we'll give you an answer to your questions. <laughs> you can come down, we got some shallow water here. We've got some very big sharks actually that are lurking in the area. And what we do is we study them and we, basically throw in a line. And when we catch the shark, we let the shark fight against the rod. It could be for like 12 hours mm. till the shark gets exhausted. And at that point, the shark is almost like so tired, he just wants to sleep. And I said, well, when the shark is in that state, Cal, what you can do is dive into the water and swim down and like you can ride on a tiger shark's back you can and you'll get a chance to feel how sandpapery the skin is and and get a feeling for the feel of a shark so i said oh this is great now you do this all the time right it's kind of like your doctor how many times have you done this? It was more than one. 
If they had said one, I don't know that I would have gone down. And I'm telling you, this was not even scuba diving 90 feet deep. I was snorkeling. That's how shallow the water was. Right? And so they get me close to this shark, and it's like a huge shark. And they said, look, he's really tired. All you got to do is, like, just go down. You get on top of him, feel his skin. And so I got the snorkel on. I dive down. I go right over the shark, and I'm just kind of very gracefully coming on his back and now I'm on his back and I'm kind of feeling that sandpapery back and I'm like, wow, just like this is amazing. And all of a sudden, like this shark kind of turns around and like you could just see and it's like, what the hell are you doing here? And I just look up and I go like, oh no, because I knew what was coming. Mm. And in the next second, there was just this kind of murky, because again, this was shallow water. And all of a sudden, everything is getting dark and murky. And now I'm like heading up to the surface as fast as I can, because, you know, the shark was just saying like, you don't belong here, pal. Yeah. <laughs> and I got up to the surface gasping for air. And I got to say, don't necessarily know if I would do it again, but I'm glad that I did it. And like I hear, uh, I've heard of places where you can go swim with the sharks, where they feed them. And, you know, it, it's cool. It's a great experience. So I might do that. Uh, I don't. I don't know that I necessarily have to be dropped in a cage around a great white <laughs> just to get the idea. I kind of got the idea. <laughs> yeah, those those um, places where you can actually swim with sharks, they end up being like nurse sharks or something that is timid. In, right, in, yeah, yeah. Shark, not like swimming with a, a tiger shark or tiger sharks. They have come up with tiger sharks, sharks that had suits of medieval armor mm. in them that they had digested. Damn, I mean, that, that's like the size of these creatures, and they're not to be trifled with. No, just yeah, let them. I, I personally say, let them be. Yeah, uh, don't mess with nature. It it bites back sometimes. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. How how's the coral reef there? I've never been to the. Never been to the coral reef. No, my friend, never been. Uh, it's on my ever growing list of places that this year, funny enough, was actually going to be the year that I travelled to uh, Great Barrier Reef. Uh, all over some places in Australia that I've always wanted to go and then to America and then to Italy and all those other places. Like this was my year to travel and then COVID hit other plans. Here I am. So it's on my, my ever growing list of wow. um, 
places that I do need to visit. <laughs> like every time I speak to somebody else or new, they always recommend a new country or a new place and go check this out. And I'm like, okay, it's going on my list. <laughs> but what about Ayers Rock? Have you been there? Haven't been there either. What is going on here? I know. How un Australian of me. <laughs> <laughs> Very un Australian not to visit these places, funny enough. I've been to see these places. I heard you go out there and it's just, there's a lot of flies buzzing around. You know, it's very romantic till you get there. <laughs> <laughs> they paint this amazing picture and then real yeah. life, get me out of here. Like, <laughs> yeah. well, it's like you, you see it. And then it's okay. Yeah, where do we get a sandwich? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> where we get a sandwich where the flies don't annoy us. <laughs> uh, um, but Cal, I I have two final questions for you, if you don't mind, because I do want to be respectful okay. of your time. We may need to do a part two later on in the future because I do have <laughs> a lot of questions for you. But right. um, okay, so this is a question that I ask everyone at the very end. It's my all-time favorite question. It's a hypothetical one, so just bear with me while I, I, I say it. So imagine for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100 and your right. friends have decided to put together a film for you, the Carl Fussman film of everything right. you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Probably it would be an incredibly long movie, but don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic. And they've shown it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Everything that's going to come in the next 30 years. I can't tell you what it is. I just think I'm going to have the greatest impact of my life in the next 30 years. I feel like Everything I've done up until this point has been to prepare me for where I'm going. I mean, think of this. I am going to try to reshape healthcare in the United States without knowing anything about it. I want you to consider that sentence. It is a monumental task, and I am really going to try. Mm. And so if I was watching a movie, I'd want to see where I am right now and then see where the next 30 years took me and to what I was able to accomplish in that time. Movie would start literally right now with that question. I love that. That's a film that I definitely want to watch, plus all the other things that you've done in your life, which is very fascinating. Um, this is uh, another favorite question of mine. So you've traveled to a lot of different countries, I can imagine. And um, I'm curious, what is the weirdest food combination you've ever tried? It's interesting because I don't look at food as weird. Hmm. I, I, I have such an open mind toward things that if somebody at, in Africa asked me to eat termites, 
I would just be curious. I wouldn't think it was weird. I would be more curious about it than to stop and think, oh, I can't, I can't even consider that. So, I mean, it's interesting because I know like they serve monkey brains in Zaire. I just, I don't know if that would do anything to you if you ate it. (laughs) (laughs) But I have an intense curiosity. And so if I saw people sitting around munching on it and smiling, it wouldn't seem weird to me. I would feel like, give it a shot. Why not? (laughs) <laughs> why not eat monkey brains who knows maybe they think they, they might get smarter by eating monkey brains you know what? i say that i say that one of the things that i'm thinking about with this whole health thing is about the food that i'm going to bring in mm. and so maybe at this point i might not eat the monkey brains i might <laughs> i might just decide on a diet that's kind of plant-based and very natural. Although to the people who are eating monkey brains, I'm sure it's very natural to them. So I uh, each each to their own, right? I mean, if they enjoy eating monkey brains, go for I, it. <laughs> I've heard, you know, I've heard termites, uh certain types of termites can taste pretty good. Hmm. I've heard the same thing. Same with uh crickets. For some yeah, there you go. Cricket. Flour now, they got cricket, everything. High source of protein. <laughs> um, I'll tell you an interesting quote. This it. really makes you think. It's kind of an interesting way to end the podcast because it just make you go away wondering about this quote. And it comes from the guy who was in on the creation of the polio vaccine. His name was Jonas Salk. And he said that if tomorrow all the insects in the world disappeared, in a very short time, there would be no life on the planet. At the same time, If suddenly all the humans on the planet disappeared, all other life would have a magnificent renaissance. Think about that. Why did you just do that to me? Like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no, my curious brain is going to be thinking about that all day long. <laughs> That's exactly why I did it. <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to have this uh, conversation extended. And uh, you know what? I'm also learning to be an entrepreneur. Mm. And so what I'm starting to do is work with a company that was just formed. It's called Comi, K-O-M-I. 
And it has sort of a panel of experts on a variety of subjects. And anybody can get this Comey app and go and look for the expert and the subject that you want to know about and take a class. Hmm. So I'm going to be giving classes on this Comey app. I haven't given the first yet, but I think I may start next week. And if anybody wants to check it out, they can find me there. And the questions are going to the, the classes are going to be very simple. It's just pretty much what we're doing here. You can ask me anything you want about questions, about curiosity, about interviewing. And I'll come up with the best answers I can. There you go, everybody. If you enjoyed this part one conversation with myself and Cal, then you're definitely going to enjoy his course. Soak it up, learn as much as you can, be curious. I encourage everyone to do that. It's worked for me and it's worked obviously for Cal. So Cal Fussman, thank you so much sir, for coming on the Storybox podcast for the first conversation of many more to come. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so, brother. And you know what? I may have to get down to Australia and drag you to Ayers Rock because I don't want you to be the only Australian who's never seen your national treasures. You haven't <laughs> been to the great coral reef. Have you been to the opera house? I've been there, yes. That one. <laughs> I was beginning to get nervous. <laughs> well, I'll welcome you with open arms here, my friend. Thank you so much once again right. for everything. You take care and be blessed. really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.